Hello, and welcome to As We Wait, an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of the entire Bible, led by pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. Let's join Mike as he focuses on chapter 10 in our study of the New Testament Gospel of John. We have a few moments before we begin, so let's get our Bibles and notebooks and prepare our hearts and minds to receive the Word of the Lord. The same as a thief and a robber, but he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of the strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things that they were which he spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling, and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming, and leaves the sheep, and flees. And the wolf catches them, and scatters the sheep. The hireling flees, because he's a hireling, and doesn't care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father, and lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Gracious Lord, once again we thank you for your incredible sacrifice for us. We thank you, Lord, for your great love. We thank you, Father, for revealing yourself to us through your word. We ask now, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand these things. Help us, Lord, to hear your voice in the midst of all the other things going on. Guide us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen, you guys can be seated. Jesus is in the middle of, it's a confrontation, I think, to be kind. He's in the middle of a confrontation with the religious leaders. And even though in parts of this they said, you're mad, you're crazy, who are you, that kind of thing, Jesus has been very patient with them. And again, he speaks to them, trying to help them understand what the story is here. And so we look at verse 7, and it says, Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, or most assuredly, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. You can underline that word again, because as I mentioned last week, as Jesus repeats himself, it's for our benefit. And it's for theirs. He hasn't given up on them, even though they're at odds or at enmity with Jesus. In fact, even though they want to kill him. I like what we read in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 
The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Our Lord has a heart to save everyone. He died to save everyone. It's just that not everyone takes advantage of that. Our God loves us and he pursues us. Now in verse 7 or forward, Jesus begins to use a little bit different type of illustration. As I mentioned last week, there were two different types of sheepfolds. The one that we described last week is more or less for winter. It's close into town or it's actually in the city. It's usually built with stones and a wall and a door, and it's larger, holds a lot more sheep. And in the wintertime, they would bring the sheep basically into the city where they'd be protected. As it gets towards the spring and the summer months, they would have to go farther out from the city to find green pasture and grass for the sheep to feed. And so the flocks would kind of split up, and the shepherds would take them out in the various different directions looking for green pasture. And so when they got out to the wilderness areas, if you will, then the shepherds would actually improvise and make their own sheepfolds. Oftentimes it would be just like a cave or even a part of a cistern that was exposed, and they would build a little rock wall in front of it or like a pen. And again, at the end of the day, after the sheep were done feeding and stuff, he would stand in front of the doorway and put his staff down, his shepherd's staff, and each of the sheep would be trying to crowd and get their way in through the door. And one at a time, he let them in. And as they came through the doorway, he'd stop them, he'd inspect them for bruises or bite wounds or bugs, different things, and he would kind of inspect them, count them, and let the next one in, then let the next one in, and he would go through his entire flock. And then once the last sheep had gone through that doorway, then that shepherd would lay in the doorway, and thus he became the door of the sheepfold. So the sheep wouldn't come in or out unless they went past the shepherd, but it was the same thing for predators. If there was a wolf or a fox or something out there that was going to try and snag one of the sheep, they had to basically go through the shepherd for that to take place. And so the sheepfold was a protected place. The sheepfold was a place of safety. And the shepherd then controlled basically who went in and out the door. So in this verse, we have Jesus saying that I am the door of the sheep. So he's the guy that's going to guard who goes in, who goes out, who determines who goes in, who's out. But I liked it. It's very specific. You notice he says, I am the door as opposed to a door. Okay? People like to say, well, all roads lead to heaven. Eh, no, they don't. There's only one door. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus. It's just like what he said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me, because Jesus is the door. In verse 8, All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. All who came before me claiming to be Messiah were impostors. It's really interesting because there were lots of other men prior to this, who had claimed at different times to be the Messiah, different times that they claimed to have some kind of authority over the nation of Israel. And it's interesting because in Acts chapter 5, verses 34 and forward, we have this little passage that kind of gives us a clue here. It says, Then stood there up one of the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had a reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. The apostles had been arrested, basically, for preaching in the name of Jesus. And they brought them in. They were going to put them under trial. And Gamaliel now kind of intercedes a little bit. And he says, before you get too hasty and do something to these guys, just think this through. If you just leave them alone, it's probably going to die on its own. Like other things that have happened in the history of Israel. Then he goes on to say, you men of Israel, take heed to yourselves. What you intend to do is touching these men. For before those days rode up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, uh, who was slain and all, 
and as many obeyed him were scattered and brought to nothing. Verse 37, After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxation, and drew away much people after him, he also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. Gamaliel is like, you know what, there's other guys that have risen up and tried to kind of promote themselves as being something, the Messiah or whatever. All these weirdo kind of movements died on their own. And so if we just let these guys alone, the same thing will probably happen, because sometimes it's like the forbidden fruit. You know how it is. You tell somebody not to do something, what are they going to do then? They are for sure going to do it. If someone says, don't go to that church, then 800 people will go to that church next weekend because they go, well, why, why? You know, they're trying to figure it all out. And so Gamaliel is kind of counseling in that direction. It is interesting to look at the wording there in verse 8. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, not were. Isn't that interesting? Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to the thieves and robbers. He's describing the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious people, as being thieves and robbers. Now, to me, this is kind of interesting because... There have always been pretenders, just like there's imposters today. When I was a cop, I arrested a bunch of people that thought they were God. I also arrested people that thought they were butterflies and fire trucks and stuff. It's interesting because there are actually people running around. There's a guy in Florida that claims to be the incarnation of Jesus, and people are flocking to his church. You look at back in the 70s, Jim Jones down in Guyana and other people like that. David Koresh, and on and on the list goes. There's always been those weirdo imposters and, and people that do those kinds of things. But it's interesting. Then as today... There's one thing that distinguishes all those other people from the real deal. You see, the real deal, when he was put to death, rose again three days later. Okay, None of the other so-called messiahs or false apostles or false prophets or whatever they are, none of them, after they died, rose again. Buddha, Confucius, on down the list of religious people like that, they had a big, bold statement, but where are they today? They're dust in some far-off place. But Jesus rose again from the grave, and he had witnesses to prove it. Christianity is not as much a creed or a church, but Christianity is based on a person. That's the person of Jesus Christ. Now in verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. By me, if any man enters in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. This is one of those unmistakable I am statements. Jesus makes a number of different I am statements in this book, but when he says I am, to us that means, well, I am this or I am that. But it goes back to the beginning of Judaism. This goes back to the book of Exodus when Moses came across a burning bush on top of Mount Sinai when he realized he was standing in the presence of God. In fact, this bush was burning, but it wasn't being consumed. And as he's approaching this burning bush, a voice, the voice of God, comes from the bush and says, Take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. And Moses realizes that he's standing in front of God, essentially. And as he gets into this conversation and God commissions him to go back to Egypt to deliver the people from bondage in Egypt, he goes, well, who do I say has sent me? What's your name? And God responds, I am that I am. And what it boils down to is I am the becoming one. What do you need me to be? I will be your peace. I will be your healing. I will be your strength. I will be your might. I'll be whatever you need me to be. And so I am that I am, that's another way of saying Jehovah. And when Jesus said, I am, and he puts the door next to it, or I am the good shepherd, and different things he says. But when he says, I am, it's a phrase that the Jews all would key on. And generally speaking, when he would say, I am, and fill in the blank after that, anything, they would pick up stones to kill him, to stone him to death, because he was basically claiming at that moment to be God. When he makes, again, this very assertive, I am the door, it's very assertive on Jesus' part. He is saying that salvation is through him. And when he says, I am the door, he's saying there is no other way. I'm not a door. 
I am the door. Later on in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, the apostles kind of figured out, they declared, neither is there salvation in any other. For there was no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And this is not anything new. Jesus has been preaching this message now for about six chapters, okay? It's been the same thing, just he says it this way, he says it that way, he says it the other way, and he keeps tweaking it a little bit, kind of in a certain sense, hoping that they'll get it. It's like your math teacher in junior high school. You're trying to learn some kind of algorithm or some kind of equation or something. Me, you know, I didn't get it the first time. So, okay, and they explain it this way. It still looked like you're lost. And so they explain it another way. <laughs> and by the time the teacher's got done, they've explained it 15 times. You go, oh, now I get it, hopefully. But these guys aren't quite there yet because they don't want to get it. But it's the same message that Jesus has been preaching already. Back in John chapter 3, verse 36, he said, He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. And he that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus is both instructing and he's warning these religious leaders of their fate unless they repent. And at the same time, he's reassuring this formerly blind guy that he's safe and secure in this new fold. Because, you know, a lot of this discussion has been about the fold. You can't get into the sheepfold unless you go the right way or do it through the right person. And this blind guy was kicked out of, if you will, the fold of Judaism. He's just been excommunicated from Judaism, kicked out of the temple, kicked out of the synagogue. He's no longer, in a certain sense, even allowed to be a Jew. But Jesus went and found him. Remember the last chapter? And he says, do you believe in the Lord? And he goes, who is he, Lord, that I might believe in? It's me. And the guy bowed down before Jesus and he worshipped him. He's been embraced now into this new fold. And I like the fact that Jesus says there in verse 9 that if they come in, they shall be saved. If any man enters in, that means that they've got a choice. We've all got a choice. Christianity is different than Islam. Islam, they'll put a sword to your back or a gun to your head, and they'll say, convert or die, your choice. We've always got a choice. But that's not how Christianity is. Jesus says, come, make a choice, choose freely. And he says, if you make that choice, in verse 9, then you'll be saved, you shall go in and out, and that you'll find pasture. Going in and out and finding good pasture. David wrote about that in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, and my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Man, what a cool thing. I mean, just to be with the Lord, to know that he's taking care of us, to know that everything is good in his presence. The good shepherd makes sure that his sheep have plenty of water. And Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit. It's a symbol of living water, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He makes sure that we have good green pasture, green grass, which is the word of God. We feed on the word of God. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He gives us all those things that we need to grow strong. He gives us all those things that we need to live. In verse 10, The thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. You know, Jesus says that the thieves come basically to take advantage of the sheep. Is for their own enrichment, to steal. Stealing, you know, and this sounds dumb to even define this, but what is stealing? Taking what is not theirs. Taking what belongs to somebody else. And how are they doing that? 
They're taking the tithes and the offerings, and they're using it for their personal use. They're taking, you know, as they come in and want to buy a sacrifice or exchange money for the temple shekels and all that kind of stuff, they're gouging them. And they're getting rich off the people. They're stealing from the people for themselves. They're taking what belongs to God, and they're using it for themselves. They're stealing. It says they steal, and they kill, and they destroy. Now, I know I don't have to define what it means to kill, okay? But when you think about this, when Jesus said you're killing people, what does he really mean? Are they out there slaughtering people, like executing them? No. Worse. They're keeping people from getting saved. They're keeping people from coming to know the true and the living God. To kill something means to make it dead or to prevent it from coming back to life in a certain sense. Jesus is describing the religious leaders who are stealing. They're taking what's not theirs for themselves, and they're leading people to hell. They're killing them. In fact, later on in Matthew chapter 23, verse 15, wrong reference up there, it's 23:15, not 13. It says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you can pass sea and land to make one proselyte, one new believer, one convert to Judaism. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. In other words, you're not leading people to salvation, you're leading people to hell. That's a damning criticism. That's an incredible accusation for Jesus to make against his religious people. Because he's accusing them of being murderers. Because they're not leading people to the truth. They're not leading people to heaven. They're not leading people to Jesus. They're leading people to their own religion, their own traditions, their own ways of doing things. And Jesus fronts them on it. But I love the contrast here. Jesus does just the opposite. He didn't come to take. He didn't come to take advantage or to receive. Jesus came to give. It says, The thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I am come that they might have life, that they might have it, more abundantly. That word might is kind of interesting, that they might have it. Not that they will have it, because what did he say in the definite way they will have life? Because each one of us has a choice. We might not. We might make the wrong choice. We might do the stupid bozo no-no something, make an idiotic decision and say, no, talk to the palm. I don't want you, God. And so they might not. To me, it's really interesting. It's possible if they make that choice. But the choice is left to us. To me, it is interesting that God does stack all the information very lopsidedly in his own favor. I mean, if we go to hell, it's because we had to crawl over all the orange cones. It's because we had to get around the wooden barricade. We had to run over the cop that was saying, stop, don't do that. And we got to do all kinds of crazy stuff. We blow through all that junk and we fall off the edge. Then on the way down, we're screaming, why did this happen to me? Follow the cones, okay? <laughs> When people end up in hell, they can't blame God. All they can do is blame themselves because they made a choice, a bad choice. But that decision is left in our hands. That's why Jesus says that they might have it. Moses tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live. To me, it's an amazing thing that God gives us that kind of choice. We know from what the Bible tells us that we are made in the image of God. And that doesn't mean that God looks like any one of us in particular, just that we have some of the same attributes that God has. And God, one of his attributes is that he is sovereign. God can pretty much do whatever God wants to do. We have a degree of sovereignty, which means we have a degree of choice. And then we're held responsible for the choices that we make. 
And God tells us, choose life, dude. And I was talking to this one guy, he's a brother now, but man, he was just a grumpy old Marine Corps sergeant, retired guy from Vietnam and had this long, hard life and all this kind of stuff. My pastor and a lot of other people had been witnessing to him and talking to him and trying to share the gospel with him and trying just to love on him and be all kind and nice and everything. And I knew all that, heard about him. I didn't even know the guy being taken over there to meet him for the first time. I walk in and the pastor's making nice, nice to him and stuff. And after listening to it for about half an hour, I just turned to Paul and said, Paul, let me ask you something. You've heard the gospel. And he goes, yeah. He said, you know that if you receive Jesus Christ, you're going to go to heaven. And if you reject him, you're going to go to hell. He goes, yeah. He said, then don't be stupid. Pick the right choice. Let's go. <laughs> he goes, okay, I'll accept Jesus. <laughs> and he prayed to receive Jesus, and he's still walking with him to this day. But sometimes we just beat this horse to death. Oh, I got to look. And then look at it from 12 different angles. Come on, it's not that hard. Moses says, choose life or choose death. It's up to you. And Jesus pretty much says the same thing. Jesus came to give life, and he says that more abundantly. Some people wrongly read this, that he will give us an abundant life materially. And there's a lot of ministries that try and harp on that. Oh, if you become a Christian, man, life is going to be great. There'll be gold dust and feathers and just rolling in the dough, man, driving a Mercedes and a big house and nah, 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 on and on it goes. And I've not found that to be true in my Christian walk. What I found in my Christian walk is that sometimes it can be pretty hard. Jesus didn't say it would be easy. He said it would be worth it. Everyone's talking about Robin Williams, and it's such a tragedy that he took his own life and all these different things. People that commit suicide, they think it's going to get better. It's not going to get better unless you know Jesus Christ. The very first thing he said when he passed from this life to the next was, uh-oh, or something like it. I'm telling you, because... Unless you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, when you step from this life to the next, it's nothing but flames and wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth and total terror that never ends. And people think they're going to go to something better. And that may not be the case if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't given your life to him. And people, again, wrongly read into this that it means an abundant life in a material sense. And that's not what it means. When he said that you'll have life more abundantly, you know, we start off in this world not guaranteed of anything, by the way. None of us knows that we're going to have another day or another year or another decade. What's the average lifespan in America? The average lifespan is like 74 or something like that, or 72, or in there somewhere. It might be going up. Say we live 100 years. Say we live 200 years. Would anybody agree that that's a good long life for most of us to live 200 years? I would. be a bummer, though, because by then I'll be really creaky and banged up. But anyway, what's 200 years, though, compared to eternity? What's 200 years compared to 1,000 years? or to 10,000 years, or to a million years, or to a million, million, billion years. 70, 80, 90, 100 years is nothing compared to that. But that's what Jesus gives us. If we accept him as our personal Lord and Savior, he says we will never die. Sure, we'll pass from this life to the next, but we'll have eternal life. He gives us an incredibly great deal. We never die. We get eternal life. Jesus tells us in the next chapter, in John chapter 11, verse 26, whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. The bottom line is, in this world, that if we're born once, we will die twice. If we're born once, the natural way, like everybody else says, you're born into this world, you come out screaming and kicking and stuff, and you live your life. If you're just born of the flesh, born of a woman, then we will face physical death someday. Everybody, it's like taxes and death, right? Everybody faces that. But then after that physical death, there come a point when the person who doesn't know Jesus Christ has only been born once, they will face spiritual death. And spiritual death is described in the Bible as being eternally separated from God. 
In other words, God's in heaven. What's the farthest place away? Hell. Okay? But if a person is born twice, they will only die once. Well, that's all the time we have for now. You've just been listening to Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, expounding upon Chapter 10 in the Gospel of John. Please join us again next time as we continue our study through the book of John and the entire Bible. As We Wait is an outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. We pray that you have been blessed and would like to invite you to join us in person. We meet at 450 Richmond Road, Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30, Wednesday evenings at 7, and communion is celebrated the first Sunday of each month at 6 p.m. To get the entire study on CD, you can call the church office at 530-257-4833 or write to us at P.O. Box 1316, Susanville, California, 96130. For more information or to stream all of our broadcasts, you can go to www.ccsusanville.com. Until we meet again, may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus be upon you.